have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, when I say at least their sense of it, I mean that our elected officials only know imprecisely what is popular or how their constituents may react to their stances. They try to find the pulse of where people are and what their voters want. So they listen to the political conversation and they see what happens to other lawmakers when they promote different ideas and pass different laws. One of the people who helps them hear what is going on around the country is Jonathan Williams, the chief economist and executive vice president of policy at the American Legislative Exchange Council. They get lawmakers together uh, with each other at their conferences they host to listen to what is going on and to draft model legislation that can be applied across the country. Jonathan, welcome. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, good to be back with you and uh, always good as a native uh, Michigander myself to, to be on a, uh, a Michigan-based uh, podcast is this one. Thanks. So first, what does the American Legislative Exchange Council do? Well, you know, we take the idea of the 50 laboratories of democracy, right? And that's something that was coined by uh, famously by very infamous uh, progressive uh, justice of the Supreme Court, uh, Louis Brandeis, you know, but taking that concept, which he meant for big bad government uh, interaction and actually taking it though and realizing that, you know, states are laboratories for innovation and, and uh, collaboration and you know, seeing what works and what doesn't work. You know, ALEC is now going on 50 years old as an organization next year. Uh, and we were created by about a dozen state legislators in 1973, including, at the time, freshman Michigan State Representative John Engler was among the ALEC founders who wanted a policy organization that would provide trusted free market policy ideas for America's state legislators so they can take the best ideas and what's happening in some states and replicate those and avoid the mistakes that are happening in others. And of course, the idea then would be Hopefully, at some point, maybe it's not this cast of characters in Washington, but those ideas would bubble into a federal discussion about uh, maybe we shouldn't replicate the failures of California and New York and Illinois, but we should instead replicate the successes of Texas and, and Florida and Utah and Arizona and Tennessee and all the great things that are going on. And I think the positive thing about what we do is we are a very solutions oriented as an organization. We're not just a just a think tank. We have a lot of great things and studies and original research, but the model legislation that we produce, as well as just the exchange of ideas that you alluded to of members, you know, wanting to learn from these ex important and valuable experiences. Uh, that's why Alec was founded 50 years ago, nearly. What are some of the policies that you've been recommending to legislators? Well, there's a lot. And, and you know this well, James, after uh, being involved with ALEC for uh, a long time and sitting on some of our task forces. But over the years, uh, we've re really uh, have a library now of uh, nearly 1,000 pieces of model legislation, uh, ALEC.org. It's not a secretive thing. It's We encourage anyone with internet access to uh, to go and check out all of these. And you know, some obviously work for some states, some don't. Uh, but you know, a lot of the things that we've been looking 
looking at this year. And one of the things that we can maybe share in, in uh, a link to your listeners is the ALEC policy priority document for uh, 2022 that we released earlier this year. Uh, but we've had a really big focus this year for many reasons uh, on the three E's, and that is education, the economy, and energy uh, issues as being some of the big drivers of not only federal uh, policy discussions, but also what's going on more importantly at the state level, uh, whether that is just the war on energy that we've seen with the Biden administration uh, and uh, sue and settle just the, re- the recent thing on the permits for new leasing and, and uh, oil and gas exploration, but shutdown of pipelines, and of course, leading into the horrible supply side constraints that have led to this uh, inflation that we've been suffering from uh, now all year at record highs. Re- regardless of the passage of the uh, misnamed Inflation Reduction Act, of course, we continue to see inflation numbers uh, at all time uh, highs, at least in uh, most people's uh, living memory over the last four decades. Uh, Then you look at things like education. Uh, Really, the moment uh, that uh, education hit the forefront when every parent looked over their children's shoulders and uh, wondered what they were being taught in many cases from their public education systems. And of course, the Virginia experience where Terry McAuliffe uh, probably said out loud what uh, he had believed for a long time is that, and incredibly, he said that parents shouldn't have uh, involvement with their kids' education and what they should be learning, right? Basically, that's why he lost the governor's race. So we're seeing education and the need for more curriculum transparency, as well as choice, where dollars would follow the needs of the families and the parents and the children instead of bureaucracies and buildings. Uh, That's been a huge area where even uh, just a couple of months ago, Arizona passed, I think, the nation's most comprehensive school choice legislation for an education savings account plan that was universal and not means tested and not based on special circumstances, but for any families across the state. And then when it comes to the economy, uh, what free market ideas are needed now more than ever, given the numbers that we continue to see. It was a painful day just recently with the Dow Jones losing 4% of its entire valuation down uh, over 1,200 points in one day as the market expects future interest uh, rate hikes given the inflation problem and additional big government spending packages here in Washington. Of course, the, the story is much different at the state level where states don't print money, thank God. Uh, they have to balance their budget, uh, opposed to the ideas here in Washington where we don't even try anymore. But, you know, looking at those economic policy reforms that are working at the state level, and I know we want to talk a little bit more in detail on that, but there's been some huge developments this year in tax cuts and deregulation and so many of the things that matter for economic competitiveness. Yeah, that's the trend I want to talk about right now. I mean, what is going on with so many states eliminating their multiple tax bracket income taxes and and instead applying a single flat rate income tax? Well, it's been an incredible movement. Uh, And you know know this, James, in that uh, over 110 years or give or take of states taxing income since Wisconsin was the first state in the progressive area to create a state level income tax, even before the federal government uh, was able to uh, make that legal with the 16th Amendment to the Constitution. Debates aside on the uh, proper passage of the 16th Amendment, I know our former professor, Dale Haywood, uh, uh, the late great uh, economics professor not at our alma mater, Northwood University, uh, would argue that point strenuously. Uh, but that being said, um, you know what states have done in this last session, uh, we had five new states become flat tax states. That means going from the multiple bracket progress, so-called progressive uh, tax system to a single rate flat tax uh, has been incredible. I mean, in that 110 years that states have been taxing income, by the way, there were a grand total of four states in 110 years that had gone from pr- 
progressive graduated income taxes to flat taxes. Fast forward to 2022, we went from four to nine. So we more than doubled that amount in one legislative session. You know, you have to think back to ask yourself, you know, why and how is this possible? And there's a couple of real reasons for that, I think. One is the just the headwinds coming from Washington, D.C., and that so many of these common sense free market state legislators are looking with just unbelievable uh, confusion of what in the world is the Biden administration thinking when it's coming to these economic policy decisions. The Wall Street Journal editorial page recently, I think, uh, said it pretty aptly, and that is uh, any Seinfeld fans here, uh, this is almost the George Catanza style of government. Everything that you should be doing in economic policy in the federal level under the Biden administration, they're doing the exact opposite. So I think states are realizing they need to be a counterbalance for their hardworking taxpayers to say, yes, inflation is eating away your savings. You're seeing uh, driving you know, housing values in many areas with driving property taxes. They don't have the Headley Amendment necessarily in a lot of states uh, to protect against the rising property taxes. And so what can we do at the state level to really give our uh, folks a chance against all of these bad economic policies that are happening? But also the fact uh, that states are seeing record levels of surpluses and there's so much money sloshing around in state and local budgets right now, both for natural revenue growth, but also all the federal bailout funds that came during the, uh, the tail end of the Trump administration, but more or less the vast majority of them coming in the Biden administration, uh, some being dedicated to COVID-related measures early on in the Trump years, less, much less so in the Biden years. It's been a record time of revenue at the state level. And so it's really great to see that states are prioritizing cutting taxes with that instead of just growing government, because that's always the inclination, right? Is that if it's not uh, you know, gotten out of the state capital, if the money's still there, they will spend it, regardless of party. This is a nonpartisan problem, Republicans and Democrats alike. And I hear time and time again from appropriators, senior appropriators, chairman of committees out there, we've got so much money, we don't know what to do with it all. And thank goodness that they're cutting taxes and not just using it to grow government. Yeah, but the flat tax thing is kind of interesting because it didn't have to be that way. I mean, when you're washing cash, they could play with credits, uh, deductions and exemptions. They could use the tax code to deliver cash to favored groups or, you know, just limit uh, tax reductions to a small group of people. Or they could take all of their tax brackets and lower tax uh, rates, you know, uh, for each of them. But they didn't do that. Why do they move to flat taxes? Well, that's a great question. And I think, you know, the work that you you all have been doing, the work that we've been doing, so many of the free market groups out there to educate, you know, not all taxes are created equally. You don't get the same bang for the buck as when you give a rebate uh, out. And we're seeing that in a lot of states as well, in addition to this great tax, uh, flat tax revolution. Uh, But you don't get the economic benefit from that. Sure, you get a demand side benefit in the short term of people spending more money uh, and uh, having some sort of a demand side Keynesian economic effect. But what's the supply side incentive change? And that is what I think so many legislators are realizing. All right, if we're going to take this chunk of money, whatever it may be, out of our surplus and use it for tax relief, how do we get the best value, the most benefit from that given amount of tax relief that we can dedicate. And I think they've, uh, you know, it's been great to see they've taken the page from rich states, poor states, from so much of the research out there that shows 
Taxing income is the most damaging way of taxing at the state level. So focusing on income taxes and then focusing on permanent rate reductions. And, uh, you know, that, that matters. The marginal rate matters. And when you can take a, a graduated progressive system that penalizes individuals uh, and business owners, but let's not forget the vast majority of small businesses pay on the individual side of the income tax code. So this is great for job creation and for Main Street businesses that have been hit so hard during the pandemic. You know, but that all being said, now, this is something that has a long-term lasting economic dividend for these states that are cutting taxes in a permanent way and reducing the disincentive to do business and come and live and work in a particular state. Now, you mentioned rich states, poor states. That's your annual kind of review and outlook for states where you rate them based on how well have they done and how well are, are, is their outlook based on the policies that they've enacted. And of course, one of those policies being to move to a flat, uh, flat rate income tax. So I think you're being a little modest when you're not giving yourself some credit. I mean, I think some of these states looked at, at these recommendations, said, we can accomplish this. And then those other states, their lawmakers saw that they had gotten accolades, they've gotten praise for doing so, and thought, I want that too. Now, how much do you think that type of reputation really matters um, for these states that passed flat rate income taxes? Well, I think it matters a great deal. And uh, you just look at uh, even the regions, for instance, that uh, some of these big tax reform packages took place in this year. And I think you can uh, very much directly tie uh, some of the actions this year on flat taxes to what the actions in previous years had been in some of the neighboring states, for instance. And so the competitiveness nature, not only national, but even more acutely felt by the region. Uh, so for instance, the Southeast, and we saw you know, two states this year, Mississippi and Georgia from the Southeast become flat tax states. It's likely that we may see Arkansas and Louisiana in the coming years uh, take this up. But think about the Southeast for a minute, and you've got a, a triangle of the Southeast of no income tax states. So economic powerhouse states like Texas, Florida, and Tennessee, uh, big, big driving factor, I think, to the decisions of legislators. And I spoke to them directly about this. And I know it was a driving factor in places like Mississippi and Georgia. They say, hey, we might not be able to get to a zero income tax state this year, well, that's a goal of ours, but to help get us to that goal, we need to start reducing the rates and, and collapsing the brackets down to the flat tax is the best and easiest way to accomplish that goal. And then, you know, North Carolina has been an incredible economic success story in recent years. They've been a state that I think moved from number 26 in rich states, poor states, economic outlook uh, to number two uh, this last year. And one of the reasons why is they became a flat tax state about 10 years ago. Uh, and in the process of that, reducing rates, in fact, they just uh, signed a budget into law. And this will be uh, really a, a head scratcher for Michigan folks to think about it this way. But they had a Demo their Democrat governor, Roy Cooper, actually signed their budget last year into law that will phase out their business income tax, corporate income tax altogether by the end of the decade. Imagine a, a scenario where Gretchen Whitmer signs into a law a budget that would phase out a business income tax altogether. Uh, but they were able to do it in North Carolina. I think the because of the just the pressure in that region to get it right, because there's no room for error when you're competing against zero, uh, like uh, zero income tax, uh, Tennessee, Florida, and Texas. But then you look at other regions too. The Mountain West is a very competitive region in uh, so many ways, economic competitiveness. And another two states became flat tax states in that region. Um, Utah has been one that uh, became a flat tax state about 15 years ago and is rated number one in rich states, poor states for all 15 
conditions for economic outlook. So they've been a real a driver there. Nevada's a no-income tax state. They've been an incredible economic success story. Wyoming's a no-income tax state. South Dakota's a no-income tax state. Washington state. So you've got a lot of areas there that have been uh, uber competitive when it comes to the tax competitiveness factor. And then Arizona became a flat tax state this year because of judicial action after legislative action last year, 2.5% personal income tax, flat tax now, which will be the lowest uh, rate of any state that has an income tax, which is incredible. And then uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Idaho became the fifth flat tax state uh, this year. Uh, and I think, you know, look at that region, look at those no income tax states, the states like Utah and Arizona is competing with, and it's really a, a no-brainer for those states to look to move forward there. Now, one interesting thing for the Midwest and, you know, Michigan uh, and Indiana and Pennsylvania and others in the region, uh, surprisingly still Illinois, uh, being flat tax states and relatively low rate income taxes. I mean, obviously, we'd love to see the rate even lower. But Iowa was a state that became a flat tax state this year. And I think looking at the Midwestern landscape and realizing that Iowa had a rate of over 8% before they did their big reform this year, and they will phase their income tax rate down to 3.99% once it's fully phased in in a couple of years. So I think that's going to up the, the ante in the Midwest for states like Michigan, uh, states like Wisconsin, states like Missouri, others to say, hey, Iowa just went from over 8% to 3.99. That's going to be a major draw for small businesses and individuals. So I actually think that you know it's much more important to get it right within a region when you have competitive states there, not just nationally, but regionally is where it's at. Jonathan, you've given me so much to follow up on that I want to ask you about, but I want to start with one thing, which is that we've kind of been saying that states just have a ton of cash right now. And the question is whether they're going to spend more or lower taxes. But that's not really the question that lawmakers are faced with. The, the question is whether they're going to spend it all or whether they're going to spend more and cut taxes as well. Yep. So what are the, what are the, um, you know, is this as a matter of that states can have their cake and eat it too, or is it just we can afford a lot more priorities and some states have it at their priority to cut taxes? Well, I think we're seeing, yeah, a mixture of all the above there. And there's clearly so much money sitting in most state capitals that they can have dramatic uh, tax cuts and increased spending. Now, whether it's wise to increase spending is a whole other question. I think that we have to be very careful uh, in terms of the rainy day ahead. I think states are wise to look at the smart budget reforms to reprioritize. And this shouldn't be the time that we're not asking the important questions. I mean, we need to continue to ask the most important questions when it comes to spending. It is priority-based budgeting. Uh, our good mutual friend, the late Bob Williams, would always you know, talk about this at ALEC meetings. And we put together the Budget Reform Toolkit at ALEC that I know you're very familiar with, uh, to come up with ways that we make sure we analyze the effectiveness of spending. So I think that's the really cautionary tale. For those of us who are fiscally responsible in nature, uh, sometimes the best of times can be the worst of times and the most dangerous of times, because if the money is there, a lot of times the important questions about grading the effectiveness of spending programs uh, or uh, how do we prioritize, and even in some cases, cut spending while we've got a lot of money sitting there. That may sound counterintuitive, but it's really important right now that we don't over extend ourselves as states because you know you and I have been doing this long enough James we've seen this movie before and how it played out after the Obama bailout of the states and then the financial crisis and uh, the states coming out of that it was a very painful time uh, you know states had a lot of red ink there was a lot of uh, layoffs happening 
there was a lot of Washington Monument uh, theory of budgeting happening, and those that don't really want to cut spending put out the most uh, most publicly prolific programs to cut first in an effort to try to say there's no waste in state government. Um, but states set themselves up for a lot of failure last time by relying on the federal dollars, assuming that they were going to be there for far too long, and then having all these costly federal regulations that come with every dollar that's ever gone from Washington to the states. So that's something that we're you know, working with state legislators on, especially those that you know weren't around uh, during the financial crisis as an elected official. And let's not forget, you know, Michigan being a term limit state, there's a lot of loot, new blood in Lansing since the last time that happened. In fact, there's probably not many people around whatsoever that experienced the, what, what that meant to come out of the financial crisis and the federal bailout of states. And so you know, while we're seeing some great things in pro-growth tax reform, also I think it's necessary to look at spending and the federal uh, strings and regulations that come with the federal dollars with uh, much skepticism and really be cautious going forward because if we're seeing what we're seeing at the national level continue with you know, record high inflation, loss of economic growth, economic decline when it comes to GDP the last couple of quarters, there may some, be some very difficult times ahead when it comes to state budgets. The other thing that you mentioned I want to follow up on, which is that partisanship differs on a state-by-state basis. Some Democratic governors find tax cuts um, acceptable. In Michigan, our, our governor uh, had the chance to pass two different income tax cuts, and she vetoed them both. What's driving these decisions? Is it just trying that they have different senses of what is popular, or are these states very different? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, the model of a uh, there may be certainly some more moderate Democrat you know, elected officials in other states, so maybe not as much in Michigan uh, today as there once was. Uh, but you look at uh, Jared Polis, for instance, in, in Colorado, who has at least rhetorically supported the idea of eliminating his state's income tax as the sitting Democrat governor in a state like Colorado. Uh, you have Roy Cooper in North Carolina that had to go along with the legislature because they would probably override his veto anyways. But he, he did sign that budget into law that eliminated the corporate income tax over time. And so I think you see very different philosophies, even within parties. You have some Republican governors that aren't very ambitious about doing the right thing and cutting marginal rates They'd rather give out the handouts uh, and the, the rebate uh, approach, let much less effective. And so, you know, once again, this isn't a partisan, you know, linear relationship to say because a Republican is elected, they're going to do the right thing necessarily. You know, we hope that they listen to, you know, Alec and, and Democrats listen to us as well to kind of see what is the best bang for the buck you can get when it comes to good policy over partisanship. One of the things I wanted to dig into is exactly what uh, what value you bring to this debate. But you're actually demonstrating that right now. You're framing the issues for people. You're making strong recommendations. You're uh, promoting good reforms uh, when they happen, and you're discouraging bad uh, uh, bad reforms, bad ideas when they happen. So that's kind of what you're doing. You're doing this directly to legislators. You're doing this uh, directly to media. But what what are some ways, uh, other ways that you're adding value to this debate? Well, you know, I think it uh, goes to you know, our track record as an organization, being around uh, 50 years as an organization as a trusted source of policy solutions. Uh, people they know when they go to ALEC uh, within a free market context, uh, you're going to get uh, the very best that there is to offer when it comes to policy ideas. 
you know, doing this for 15 years here alone myself, uh, and uh, meeting, you know, working with uh, being in every 50, all of the 50 states, and you know, working with uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of state legislators and governors during that period. You know, you develop enough institutional uh, knowledge, and doing this long enough, um, it's great to be able to provide that service, especially in states that you know, in Michigan, six years and you're done in the House, and eight years in the Senate. Maybe that will change uh, this fall, but other states are like that as well, and the, the kind of the horizon of a state legislator, I think, relies on that trusted policy advice from a group like ours and groups like Mackinac Center and others that do a great job from a nonpartisan perspective, but keeping principles first and then not just being ivory tower about it, but actually coming up with ideas that work in the real world and coming up with examples because we've been in the trenches a long time to do this. We know what works from a, uh, you know, a mission-based perspective. We know what works from a strategic perspective. We know what works from a tactical perspective in many cases. And then tailoring those ideas because we don't come in and tell legislators what to do. We take their priorities and help them be successful. In a way, we're an extension of their staff uh, in a nonpartisan way to come in and come behind them with the resources like we do with the publications with coming in and doing testimony with presenting to their groups of legislators and you know tailoring the the remarks and, and the uh, the research to that particular state environment uh, now that we've been in all the states for so long and so you know and the other thing about the alec model is great is that you know, it's not just our 30-some members of the ALEC staff here in the Washington, D.C. area. It's the 2,000 ALEC state legislators across the country that make the magic happen. And they're the ones in the state capitals having to you know, press the green or the red button on every single issue out there that are living these fights, that are dealing with things uh, behind closed doors in their caucuses, and then you know, taking that and, and bringing that multiplication effort of just that ALEC knowledge base is uh, really, I think, what sets ALEC apart from so many others. What are some of your favorite wins from your career? Well, I'll tell you what, this last year, I think uh, it's hard. It's going to be hard to ever beat having five states become flat tax states in one state legislative session. Uh, that's been just incredible. And, you know, working with most of those individuals who were responsible for those wins in those states, uh, many of them being very core ALEC members, a couple of ALEC board members uh, being the sponsors of those pieces in, in states. Uh, that was just a great opportunity to be able to provide best practices as they went out and really led the fight on those issues. Uh, but, you know, things like school choice, too. I mean, seeing that Arizona uh, victory this year and seeing ALEC members lead the way on that. I'm still, you know, I know, uh, James, we're going to get a state that is going to eliminate their income tax. And it may not happen this year. It may not happen next year, but it's going to happen. Uh, it's been 40 plus years since the only state in America to ever eliminate an income tax is Alaska. And they did it with a lot of oil in the ground that helped them along the way. But because of the progress that we're making on uh, the flat tax revolution and states, you know, reducing rates, we're making it more and more feasible to completely rip the tax code out by its roots and say, we're going to not tax income in our state and be like the nine states, like the, the success models that we've been talking about throughout the course of uh, today. Look at the in-migration. I mean, that's one of the key factors of rich states, poor states, is people vote with their feet. And this uh, interstate migration, if anything, is speeding up with the pandemic and, and employees having more flexibility to work wherever they'd like. And so while we've seen some really impressive wins, I think that within the next five years, we're going to get the first state to eliminate an income tax in, in a generation or two. And that's going to be the win that uh, we're definitely coming back to do with another episode once we get that done. <laughs> 
Yeah, because I think that's something that I think a lot of people don't know about, which is that the course of states with taxes is that you add taxes, you don't get rid of them. I mean, you can tweak them once once they're enacted, you can lower them, but no state's really gotten rid of them. I mean, you can argue Tennessee with their tax on investment returns, and that's certainly a reform that I want. But the march of states has been always an adding, not subtracting. I think if that changes, it could be a, a bellwether uh, for you know changing relationships between the state and its residents. Uh, so that's one thing that might be a fashionable thing coming up in, in public policy. You've got your uh, you're in a position where you hear from legislators directly, work with them directly. You've got your finger on on their pulse. So what are some other things that are going to be coming up uh, in the next in the next session or the next few sessions? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know continued focus in many states on education reform, the ones that didn't get it done uh, this year, like Arizona, or last year, like West Virginia. I think that's going to continue. Uh, the progress there is going to be, I think, remarkable. Um, and you know, I think on top of that, we're uh, we're seeing a big movement towards uh, deregulation. You know, whether you look at uh, healthcare type regulation and occupational licensing and, and other areas like that, where it's becoming a bipartisan success story in many cases. I know you in Michigan, you're fighting against the outdated uh, certificate of need uh, laws, for instance, when it comes to healthcare. And you know, when it comes to uh, even something along uh, the lines of uh, price transparency, when it comes to hospital pricing, uh, this is an area that we saw Virginia and Colorado, two pretty bellwether uh, purple-ish states, both passed this state legislative session we just adopted new model legislation on that to give the customers a really a, a fighting chance to figure out what's going on with their hospital bills and some real transparency to that process. I think there's going to be a lot of success in that area. And another one, in a way that's, um, I think, a big opportunity or a threat, depending on how it plays out, is this radicalized concept uh, that's the way that's being defined, at least operationally, of ESG, uh, the so-called uh, environmental social governance factors that have really uh, made the headlines because of Elon Musk uh, being delisted uh, <laughs> from the uh, S&P 500 ESG index fund as the world's largest manufacturer of electric cars, uh, or other things that people have kind of started to question, you know, what is this? Is this just a, a corporate feel-good uh, responsibility uh, effort? Is this part of woke America that has uh, gone on far too long, and, and how is it playing out at state level? And I can tell you, uh, one way is in public pensions. You know this very well, and I think there's going to be a really a big reexamination of public pension model going forward, really from the old stale and, and failed defined benefit model in so many cases to the defined contribution 401k model that's so good for young workers and financial sustainability in states. Of course, Michigan was a leader in that in the 90s uh, under Governor Engler, and you guys have written prolifically about that. I think it's really important to continue to talk about the successes there in Michigan and subsequent reforms. But as it relates to keeping ESG and radicalized kind of politics out of state pension systems, that's, I think, an area that state lawmakers were seeing a ton of interest just in recent months to say, how do we fight back in a principled way against this ESG concept in one way, and we're finding it all across the country, is state pension 
funds have really fallen for this concept and they're using uh, ESG or politically based uh, motives to make investment decisions with retirees hard-earned dollars instead of just focusing on maximizing investment returns and God knows they need to do that because of the hundreds of billions of dollars of unfunded liabilities and pension plans across the country in fact trillions they need to focus on returns in fact now as we're finding out more and more red and blue states alike have fallen prey to this idea that uh, people would come in with their version of a political model of investing versus one that just benefits retirees by maximizing returns. So I think that's going to be a massive issue as we go into the 2023 session is how do we get ahead of that in order to protect pension systems, but even much more importantly, protect the retirement that's guaranteed uh, to retirees that are hardworking and expecting those checks going into retirement. Jonathan, thank you for helping us and lawmakers understand what's within the Overton window. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.